welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hi, it's Sarah. This week I'm talking to one of the UK's top illustrators and cartoonists, Chris Riddell. Chris has written and illustrated an exceptional range of books and is the winner of many awards, including the UNESCO Prize and the Greenaway Medal, which he won on no less than three occasions. In addition to his books, Chris is also a renowned political cartoonist for The Observer. He was the Children's Laureate from 2015 to 2017 and was awarded an OBE for services to illustration and charity in 2019. Chris's own books include the highly acclaimed Otterline titles and the award-winning Goth Girl series. He has had six books published in the last six weeks, the latest of which, a stunning edition of Alice in Wonderland, comes out today. He's been busy. Chris, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Sarah, lovely, lovely to speak with you today. Well, thanks very much for joining. Um, As with all my guests, I'm going to start off today by going right back to your childhood. You were born in Cape Town, South Africa, and came to the UK when you were a year old. My understanding is that you showed an interest in drawing from a very early age? Yes. Um, one of my earliest memories, um, and it's one, it, it is so early, I couldn't even tell you exactly how old I was. I think possibly three, maybe four. But I remember very distinctly enjoying a, a sort of rainy afternoon with, uh, with a pack of Crayola crayons. Um, which I um, I sort of experimented with by scribbling all over my dad's study wall, and uh, and got into terrible trouble when uh, when he came back and, and found what I'd done. And I think that's why it sticks in my memory. You know that that sort of childhood sort of you know feeling of, of disgrace. Um, but ever since then, uh, my mother kept me in in art supplies, made sure I had paper and pens and crayons and um, uh, things to draw with and on. And it's always, for me, been, been one of the most wonderfully diverting things I can imagine doing, sitting down with a blank piece of paper and drawing. It's really interesting, actually, I always think, with drawing. It's something that pretty much every child does. But an awful yes. lot of people, there's, there's a point in their life where they stop drawing, they stop, stop leaving that they can draw, which I think is is very sad because I think there is probably an inner artist in in most of us. Well, I think that's true, and and I, I think that I always talk about drawing being a, a verb, not a noun. I don't think the drawing itself, as a as an object, you know, the, the, these marks on paper, is terribly important. I think it's the act of drawing, and anyone who can hold a drawing implement can draw. They can actually actively make marks. And we tell ourselves, I think, possibly, you know, uh, in, in adolescence or possibly slightly earlier than that, that we are not artistic, that we can't draw. Um, and so we stop drawing and we find other ways to express ourselves. And, and I love it when I meet uh, very clever people in other fields who tell me that they draw um because it just gives another sort of aspect to one's character. You can be that 
I, I always tell um, students, I say, sort of, if you want to become an illustrator, uh, pick up a, a notebook and carry it with you everywhere and just make a habit of drawing every day in your notebook. You don't have to show anyone, but just be that interesting person on a train station platform or in a coffee shop or, or, or a library, you know, with a notebook scribbling something. I think that's always a good look. Um, and you'll find uh, ways to express yourself um, through the marks you make in on, on the pages of a, a, a sketchbook. Um, and you break down, I think, that, that notion that you can't draw if you simply pick up something and you start drawing. I should take your advice. I am one of those people that fall into the camp of saying I can't draw. But so I do, do, you do, do you have lots of paperwork and, and things you need to sort of, you know, hold a pen to fill out forms, that sort of thing? Yes, yes, I do. Yep. If you're around stationary, I would advise you to start doodling, you know, in the margins, on, on post-it notes, whatever. Just, just start with a doodle. There's no pressure. Um, and once you've sort of perfected your doodling technique, um, then transfer that into your notebook and, and you'll be up and running. That's funny, actually. In my former life, I used to work in an office. I worked in an office for 12 years. And when I was on conference calls, I did mm. often doodle. <laughs> but I just great, find it isn't isn't it? It? Yeah. yeah. And and that means, you know, you are creating something. You're creating something visual. You're thinking or even not thinking on paper. I, I think the idea of of not thinking about the marks you make, which essentially is what a doodle in a meeting is, is as expressive as sort of making marks that you mean. You know, I think you discover things about how you are sort of drawing when you're not thinking about it. Notes to self, start doodling. <laughs> Make that note to yourself, uh, Sarah, and then doodle on it. And then doodle next to it. <laughs> when you were a child, do you remember being inspired by a particular image or imagery or a particular book or author? I do. I do. Very much so. I remember absolutely loving my copy of uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland with the beautiful sort of engravings of, of John Tenniel, um, the classic uh, illustrations to Alice in Wonderland. And I, I used to just pore over these illustrations because I just found them so fascinating. They, they, they even, even as a young child, I knew they came from another age. You know, they had that sense of, of sort of the antique about them. At the same time, they were wonderfully accessible. You know, I, I I looked at these characters and I almost could imagine, you know, how they sounded or or how they might sort of, you know, sort of walk um, across the page and disappear down a rabbit hole. And I used to practice copying the white rabbit illustration at the front of my my copy of uh, Alice in Wonderland almost obsessively, so because I was wanting to sort of analyze how Tenniel managed to get so much character into the figure of the the rabbit, um, how he managed to make the rabbit look so alive. Um, it was something about the, the tilt of the head. It was something about how the paw held the pocket watch. And most of all, I think it was the, the way that he drew the rabbit's eyes, even looking down at, at, at the pocket watch, was extraordinary. You almost could feel the twitchiness of this creature. Um, and I drew, and I used to just, just copy it. And, and again, another tip I would say is, is if you find an image that you find particularly beguiling uh, that, that uh, grabs your attention, um, a really nice way to sort of analyse it is to sit and make a copy of it. I think copying can also be very creative. And 
Alice is such a timeless tale. I mean, we constantly have a copy or a variation of that book in our shop. And I just think what I love about it is the fact that it just spans generation to generation, doesn't it? It really is stunning. It's, it's the first children's book, I think, archetypal children's book. I, I think it sort of set the mould in a way. And all of us who've come after, I think, owe a debt to Lewis Carroll and what he was doing, framing that story. And uh, down to sort of the narrative voice, down to the wonderful sort of surrealism, the episodic quality, and Alice as the central figure. You know, this is a a book about telling telling children a story, and it is transcribed onto the pages of this book so that Victorian parents could sit with this book and read it to their children and become storytellers themselves. And I think it's that power I think it still has. And of course, then when you put Tenniel's illustrations with it, you know, you you, you have this thing uh, called a classic. And as a bookseller, Sarah, you know what classics are. They occupy mm-hmm. a certain part of the shop and, and people will go to them time and again. And I enjoy going into bookshops and, and finding the Alice section and seeing how many different versions of the two Alice books I can find. Um, because there are so many aren't there yeah there really are and they really influence other like you say other authors other illustrators there's a children's book there's a series pages and co i don't know if you yes of course yes and that's that's anna james isn't it who herself is steeped in books anna's uh, got a background in journalism where where she writes about books and is i think someone who possibly reads more books than anyone else I know. Yeah, uh, listening to her speak, actually, that was really clear how much she knew about the world of literature. And the way she introduces, again, another generation to, to Alice is just amazing. And I've got a confession at this point to make, Sarah. I have, in fact, done my own version of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland that is going to be published on the 15th of October. And I got to do my version of The White Rabbit, which I've got to say, you know, was very scary in some ways, and yet <laughs> just wonderfully fulfilling. And I also got to do my version of The Hatter. So I, I would just say, when you see a copy, Sarah, you know, have a look at my version of The Hatter. It might be controversial. Oh, well, and it's going to be interesting to look at your rabbit compared to the, the one that inspired you when you were younger. That's it very much is a homage to Tenniel, my rabbit, and my hatter very much isn't. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so your passion for drawing continued throughout your teenage years, and you went on to study illustration at Brighton Polytechnic. Yes. Where one of your teachers was the legendary Raymond Briggs. Oh, yes. Raymond is just wonderful. He is not only, you know, one of our greatest uh, illustrators, I would say, and, and visual storytellers, because that's what uh, Raymond does. I mean, he he creates worlds and tells stories in this fantastic visual way. Um, but he he was also always during his teaching career. I mean, he was a natural teacher and mentor. Um, and Raymond had a, a a sort of style of teaching that I think was the, I suppose, the exact opposite of the sort of American Marine sergeant, you know, that idea of breaking you down in order to build you up, you know, that that mm-hmm. sort of school of, you know, sort of let's murder your darlings and, uh, you know, that, that, that's a sort of creative thing to do and then you can sort of build yourself in a, in a new way. Uh, Raymond was a reinforcer. He was an enthusiast. 
and in tutorials i'll always remember he i would sort of come in and show him whatever i was working on at the time and he would look at, at what i was doing and we would talk a little bit about sort of techniques and how i might be be sort of producing things and then he would just just take a moment and he would look through uh, sketchbooks and things and he would just say um marvelous marvelous and oh, you know i would just swell with pride you know i would sit there thinking raymond briggs author of The Snowman, Father Christmas, Fungus of the Bogeyman, is telling me that that this drawing I've done, slightly inept drawing, is marvellous. And it just sort of filled me with so much pride and desire to sort of go and really try and do something marvellous to justify this. And I remember arriving for a tutorial with Raymond, and I arrived a little bit early, and Raymond was with another student, I think the year below me, and he was looking through her work and they were chatting. And then I just heard Raymond say as he turned, as he looked through her work, marvellous, marvellous. <laughs> and I decided right then and there that uh, this was because it was a, just one of those freakish things that there were two of us who were marvellous at the art school at that time. You know, I, I, I thought yeah. I would be generous in that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> He definitely didn't say that to anybody else. No, definitely not. No, I, I, I was the marvellous one in my year. There might have been another marvellous person. But but it was that sort of encouragement, I think, that made so many of us go out into the world with, with that sort of feeling. You know, Raymond has encouraged us. And when I talk to students, I often look at their work. We, we have a look at various projects they might be doing during in, on their course. And then I just say to them, do you have a sketchbook that you keep? And then they show me the, the sketchbook that they obviously show the tutor with 101 different versions of, of looking through a, a window or a, working out their, their motivations and techniques with, with annotations. And I say, no, not that one. You know, your, your own one, the one that just you keep for fun. And they'll often very shyly show me uh, a sketchbook, a little notebook, and it'll be full of dragons or wizards or Harry Potter fan art or something. And I'll say, you know, do that. That's your thing. That's why you're here. Uh, that's why you decided to come to art school because you loved drawing wizards. Be the wizard person. You know, do that. And they look at me, you know, wide eyed, going, "Really?" I say, "Yeah, you've got to follow that sort of enthusiasm, that essential thing that makes you want to produce illustrations." It's such perfect advice. It's um, something I wish somebody had told me when I was eighteen or twenty, because I think a lot of people feel this pressure to do something that they should be doing, as opposed to something that they really want to do. Oh, Sarah, I mean that's so true. And 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 you know, I would never denigrate anyone for making sensible career choices. You know, because you know, it is just. You know, we live in a world more than ever where it's very, very difficult to be creative. It's it's very difficult to run a, a, an independent bookshop. You know, um, it's very difficult to be an actor. It's very, very difficult to do anything in the arts or in the world of literature. I, I would argue, and so it is a big leap, isn't it, to to sort of choose a creative path or, or choose the thing that you really, really want to do. And I think um, there is a sense in which when we do take that leap, sometimes we've just got to accept that it is leaping in, into the dark. And the only thing we can do, I think, is is to sort of follow our enthusiasms as far as possible. When I left art school, I fully expected to, to sort of subsidise my art by waiting on tables or getting a job in a fast food restaurant or, or wherever that might be. Yeah. And I was just utterly, utterly amazed when I got my first commission. And I thought, Oh well, now I can I can spend time doing this, um, and then 
that impelled me to seek another commission, another, and and you you get you get thrown into the enthusiasm, but it's not easy. No, no, it's not. I mean, it was interesting that you brought that up because I was going to say to you, and am I right in thinking your first book was published in the mid nineteen eighties? Is that right? My first book was slightly convoluted because uh, my first commission I received at art school, but that book that I was commissioned to do was actually published after the first book that I wrote myself and, and got commissioned. So, so the two sort of overlapped. It was one of those funny things. I'd completed the commission and then I, I managed to write my own book. And the story of both these things were, were sort of happy accidents. I mean, the the first commission I got, I was at uh, at art school, and Sebastian Walker from Walker Books was lured down to Brighton by Raymond to meet the students. And I think Sebastian had come down to sort of sign Raymond up to to his new Walker Books uh, publishing company, and, and Raymond wasn't going to. He was very loyal to Penguin. But nevertheless, he managed to convince Sebastian to come down in order. I think Raymond's plan was to to get Sebastian to meet all his students. And as luck would have it, when Sebastian came down, all Raymond students were off doing a project. So there was nobody actually in the studio at Brighton Art School, except me. Um, I I was sitting there (laughs) on my own. In fact, two friends of mine had gone upstairs to get a cup of tea in the canteen upstairs. So I was literally the only person in the studio when Raymond threw the door open and said, here are my student. Um, (laughs) There I was. Caught in, 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 in the, in the sort of headlights. And of course, Sebastian and his wonderful designer, Amelia Edwards, and the wonderful editor, David Lloyd. There, there they were, the, the absolute doyens of Walker Books descended on me because there was no one else there. And I think they wanted to impress uh, Raymond. So they sort of, you know, looked at my work and discussed what I was doing. And, and Sebastian ruffled my hair and, uh, <laughs> and he said to me, would you like to do a book? And I almost fell off my my chair and I said, yes, I, I, I would love to. And he commissioned me right then and there because Sebastian was a wonderful sort of flamboyant sort of publisher. He, he commissioned me right then and there to do a book, uh, fairy tales, retellings for the series that Walker were doing in Sainsbury's, which at the time was a very daring concept. It was really out there. And so I got to pay off my overdraft, you know, instantly. Amazing. With this commission. And of course, you know, then I thought I really was the bee's knees. You know, I thought, you know, look at me. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> so talented and wonderful. And Raymond says I'm marvellous. And, and Sebastian Walker's just commissioned me. Well, of course, it was all to do with, uh, you know, Raymond, I think. Um, but then I, I went out into the publishing world, very full of myself, and got to sort of, you know, walk into lots of different publishers expecting the same thing, expecting them to say, my goodness, this amazing young illustrator has arrived. What can we find him to do? And, of course, that didn't happen. You know, they no. said, don't call us, we'll call you, and off I went. And I remember going into the offices of Anderson Press, you know, just the latest of the whole string of publishers I'd been going into without much success. And I walked in and met the wonderful Klaus Pfluger. Klaus, for those who've not met him, possesses the most flamboyant eyebrows in publishing. (laughs) Wonderfully bushy and expressive. And I was ushered into his office and, you know, I I showed him the work I'd been showing everyone else. And he looked at it and said, this is in his wonderful sort of baritone 
German accent. He said, these are perfectly good. And I said, uh, Raymond Briggs taught me. He said, I can see you've been taught well, he said. And then he looked up at me and you know, his eyebrows went up and down. He said, um, but where are your stories? And I was a little bit floored by that because um, I, up until that point, had really seen myself as an illustrator. And I was on the lookout for, for, for texts to be given to me, for publishers to say, we think you would be perfect to illustrate this or that. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I was slightly sort of caught out. So I, I found myself saying, um, well, of course, I, I, I got a story, but, um, and of course I didn't, but I, 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 I got a story, but I left it at home. And Klaus, bless him, said to me, I want to read this story of yours. Bring it in tomorrow. And again, I found myself saying, yes, okay, as I sort of gingerly sort of you know, <laughs> retreated from the office. And I went back to my, uh, my digs. And I remember coming back and thinking, right, now I've got to write a story. You know, otherwise, I'm going to look very foolish. I've, I've got two choices here. Either I can leave London in disgrace and go somewhere where, where this eminent publisher will never find me. Or I better turn up at his office tomorrow with a story. Just like that. Yes. And I sat down in a sort of blind panic and sort of, you know, constructed something, you know, a, a sort of bedtime story, a nice reassuring story for kids who, who like my younger self. I used to lie in bed when I was, I was little and my mum would turn the bedroom light off and just leave the door a little bit sort of ajar so a bit of light came into the, the bedroom. And I would lie in bed in, in the darkness and imagine something monstrous under the bed. And be too frightened to actually look, you know. So I just lie there, sort of, you know, trembling, thinking yeah. if I look under the bed, I can reassure myself and then I can go to sleep. But if I look under the bed and there is something there, I'm, it would be terrifying. So I'd just lie there with this dilemma, you know. And I thought, right, I know, I'll write a story about a lovely, cuddly blue monster who, who will, and it'll reassure children, you know, who, who read it or have it read to them that there's nothing to be worried about. And uh, I called this um, this character Mr. Underbed. And I took it in to Klaus the next day. And I gave it to him rather shamefacedly, thinking, oh, well, you know. And Klaus read it. He said, uh, this is perfectly fine. I will publish it. Oh, and uh, <laughs> again, I had one of those falling off the chair moments. And I thought, right, so this is what I need to do. I can't wait for um, you know publishers to tell me I'm brilliant and marvellous and give me books to illustrate. Um, if no one's going to be doing that, I better write my own. And so I, Mr. Underbed became the first book that was published in 1985, followed very, very quickly afterwards with the edition in Sainsbury's of uh, The Book of Giants. It was fairy tales about giants retold by Sarah Hayes. And so I had two books out, you know, almost one after the other. But I also had this this sort of proactive notion that Klaus had sort of taught me in a way uh, to to write things myself and and see if I could get out there and, and do it. And it wasn't long after that I found myself at Walker Books, holding another story I'd written. And Sarah, I, I can't tell you how exquisitely beautiful this story was. I, I had written it, you know, by candlelight, mm-hmm. wearing a, a, a large linen shirt with, with sort of <laughs> loose cuffs. And, you know, so it was just a work of exquisite beauty, sort of written very quietly. It was lovely. And I took it into Walker Books to David Lloyd, who who was my my editor. And I said, David, I... 
I've written this, you know, expecting, you know, a Klaus Fluger response. And they, they looked at it and said, um, uh, right, uh, uh, quiet, everyone. And Walker Books then was in an open plan office in the, just at the top of Warren Street. And he called the entire office, called their attention to the, the, the quiet. Everyone looked up. There must have been sort of, you know, 50 people there. And they all stopped and turned to us. And then David proceeded to stand on the table that we had been sitting at. <laughs> and he read this story I'd written. And I just shrank within myself. I wanted to crawl under the table in, in a fetal sort of ball. But, you know, I, I sort of sat there bright crimson as David read this story out loud. And what he did was he exposed, in a sense, all the missteps in the structure and in the pacing, the things that worked, the things that didn't work, you know, absolutely, very clearly. And I remember at the time thinking, okay, this is a lesson. If I write something, I must be prepared to have it declaimed, you know, in public. <laughs> uh, so I better just make sure that I'm, I'm sort of confident about it. And it, again, it was a very good lesson in, in not being too sort of shy about it. Did that book go on to be published? No, it didn't, uh, surprisingly. Uh, <laughs> in a great beauty. No, I actually then went on to do a book called Ben and the Bear, about a boy called Ben who meets a bear and they have a picnic. And it's an altogether more sort of sober work. Um, I like to think uh, a seminal influence on John Classen for instance, but I can't prove that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you've carried on. You, you said your first two books were published pretty much concurrently, and you've carried on in that kind of vein throughout your career. I was trying to work out before I spoke to you today how many books you'd written or illustrated, and quite frankly, oh, <laughs> I, just, I gave up trying to count. Well, uh, me too, Sarah, because what, what I have is the, I think, a classic sort of case of, of, of the freelance, freelance anxiety, you know, that, that feeling of, am I doing enough? I think you are, by the way. Just can I get, you know, <laughs> I need to sort of, you know, have a commission. Where can I find something? So if there is that imperative always. And so you overcommit, I think. That, that, that is a danger. And I think this is possibly a character trait because when I um, became the children's laureate, when I was asked to do that role, I was following on from the wonderful Mallory Blackman. Yeah. And Mar Mallory very kindly just sat me down. We, we, we went and had lunch together and Mallory just took me through the pitfalls and the, you know, what I might look forward to and quite frankly, scared me tremendously, <laughs> for which I'm forever grateful to her. And, um, and she sat me and we went through it all. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, what have I taken on here? I better really try hard. And I think my sort of innate sense of, you know, I better try and overcompensate here sort of took over. And so I, I thought what I'll do is I'll try and let everyone know that I'm taking this job seriously, that I'm taking my role seriously. And the way to do that is to just do a little drawing maybe each day of my laureateship, just to sort of as a, as a, a little signifier of what I might be doing, who I might be seeing, what I might, conversations I might be having. Uh, and then just maybe post that out on social media so that people can say, oh, right, right, it's that laureate guy, he's out doing things. Yeah. And so I did that and I set off and I didn't get very much feedback from the steering committee and from book trust you know they 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 were fantastic at organizing things and wonderful in their in their sort of logistic support but i wasn't getting a lot back from them in terms of sort of what i was doing um, and sort of what i should be doing so um i thought oh dear i better try a little harder 
And so I tried to, you know, do a few more things. Again, not not a lot of feedback. So I thought, right, I'm not doing enough. I'd better try and try a little bit harder. And towards the end of the laureateship, the wonderful people at Book Trust said, the data's come in. We, we'd just like to share this with you, Chris. They said, um, in the two years you were children's laureate, you did over 400 days of events. Oh, my goodness. I know. And I said, why on earth didn't you tell me that sooner? <laughs> I didn't think I was doing enough. You know? <laughs> so it is this sense of, sort of overcompensating. And that has its own problems. You know, I mean, people must have been sick to death of, of me. But... In a way, that's what we do. I think, you know, when Boyd, we work from home, you know, the tendency is to say yes to things. Otherwise, you might not be asked again. Yeah, I can understand. Um, I can understand that. And on the 17th of September, two books of yours were published. And as you said, you've got another one coming out in October. So let's talk about the books. I've got another confession to make, Sarah. I have six books coming out. I'm so sorry. You know, as I know I'm aware I'm talking to a bookseller. You're going to see these boxes arrive. You're going to think, oh, no, not him again. <laughs> but um, I doubt that. if you could just find a table maybe and, and create a small pyramid. Yeah, uh, a Chris uh, Riddell table. Nothing but. I, I like the sound of that. Okay, um, <laughs> but I'm afraid there are six coming out, which is, I think, again, a product of, of this extraordinary time we live in where publishing schedules have had to take a backseat, obviously, to, to lockdown considerations. And so now, you know, September, October has become a very, very busy month. It always was in, in terms of publication uh, dates, but it's more so uh, this year than ever before. Yeah, it's been very interesting because obviously we had the Super Thursday, the first Thursday in, in the yeah. month, which is always a big publication date anyway. Um, well, it was 600 books, I think, published on that day. And then there was another big publication date, which was the 17th of September, which is when two of your books yes. appeared. And then we. Oh, well, I had one back on the Super Thursday as well. Yes, you Sarah, did. Yes, I you did. You're right. Sorry. The, the, the book um, I did with the wonderful Michael, Michael Rosen, Rosen yes. who is uh, not just someone I've worked with, but, but a friend, you know, and I think a great inspiration. How do you find working with other people versus working by yourself? Because you do both, don't you? I love working with other people. If, in fact, if I could just work with other people, I'd be happy. You know, I'm an illustrator, Sarah. I'm, I'm, I'm not a writer. I'm not a poet. I dabble. And the reason I do is that, you know, Again, trying to sort of overcompensate. If a writer is not writing something for me or a poet hasn't asked me to illustrate their poetry, I I get a little bit sort of fidgety and then I write my own <laughs> um, just in order to have something to illustrate. To fill a gap. <laughs> oh, completely. And and the joy for me is is not in the writing, which I find, you know, onerous. It's like doing my homework. The joy is for me is always in the illustration. So if I can work with Michael Rosen or Neil Gaiman, then, of course, you know, what a wonderful thing to do because they're, they're wonderful people to work with. I love writers and poets. Uh, and when they're not available, I'm afraid I'll write my own. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, why wouldn't you work with people as talented as that? I mean, amazing, amazing authors you just mentioned. And I think the difference is, in a sense, you, you have that wonderful uh, security, in a sense, of working with great words. You know, I'm a reader as I think all of us who, who love books are, are readers. And um, there's a reassurance when, when a wonderful uh, piece of writing appears and you're asked to illustrate it. The doubts come along when I sit and write my own 
And then I illustrate it. And I think, my goodness, you know, is this whole thing built on very shaky foundations? What, what if this is terrible? What if the words are terrible? And, and I'm terrible, you know, my illustrations are sort of, you know, equal. So, so you have doubt, you know, it's all your fault yeah. if it's, uh, if you're the only name on the cover. Basically, you're working with somebody else. You share the load, don't you? I understand that. You do. Absolutely, you do. So, so the the two books you mentioned, Sarah. Well, the the, uh, the first one is my middle grade title, which is Guardians of Magic, which is the first of the Cloud Horse Chronicles, and I'm and, and that's a book I wrote really because I wanted to illustrate flying horses. Um, I wanted to illustrate gingerbread men who come to life. Um, I wanted a whole bunch of, of sort of Hamlin style rats. Um, you know, I just got to put everything I wanted to draw into this book. Oh, uh, and just have a, yeah, exactly. So, so it's a real cornucopia of all the things I, you know, giants, tin men, you know, princesses, they're all in there. Um, yeah, there's a lot in the book. It's a brilliant book. And where, where did it come from? Where did the idea come from? Was it just something that built up over time? No, no. Um, and yes. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll take you through my creative process. Obviously, we've gone there already a little bit. But, you know, I want you to picture me sitting in my studio, which is a converted coach house at the bottom of my garden. It's sort of screened by trees. So the casual neighbor looking out of their window won't see the building at the bottom of my garden. All they'll see is me walking down the garden path, disappearing into the shrubbery. <laughs> so they must wonder what on earth that man does down at the bottom of his garden all day. But th- my studio sort of is beautifully secluded. Um, I like to sort of go down there, sit and, and, and come up with these wonderful, magical ideas, you know, these great projects. I will sit, you know, sort of late into the night, composing beautiful, beautiful prose and illustrating, you know, doing little sort of plans for these wonderful books I'm going to do. You know, and of course it gets very late, so I'll then go back up my garden path, go to bed. And then this thing often happens when the next morning, you know, I'll come into the studio and I'll look at the desk and I'll see this absolutely horrendous idea sitting on on, on the table. (laughs) And I'll think, what on earth was I thinking of? Oh dear, nobody must ever see this. And what I've done, and I've learned this over the years, is I don't throw it away or incinerate it, even if I should. What I do is I um, I have a plan chest in my studio, and, and, and the very bottom of drawer I, I like to call the naughty drawer. And I put these late-night ideas that I've had, these surges of inspiration, I, I, I put them in the naughty drawer and close it very firmly, and they just sit there in the darkness. And, and they can be all sorts of things. They can be character designs. They can be little outlines for stories. They can be thumbnails and, you know, all sorts of things, you know. And so many of them are just are terrible, should never see the light of day. But in amongst them are just ideas whose time hasn't yet come, and that's, I think, why I keep them. And so every so often I'll open the drawer and just here inside, you know, have a little look through, maybe once a year, not not much more than that. And um, and just sift through things thinking, hmm, yeah, maybe I could use this. Maybe that wasn't such a terrible thing. And um, I was searching around for something to do after the Ottoline books and the Goth Girl books. I, I knew that I enjoyed doing those series, but I didn't want to do, you know, more than four of them, you know, mm. I, I think there's there's a nice number to that. So I didn't want them to expand into six or eight or ten. I just wanted them to stay as they were. So I was looking around for something new to do, and I opened my naughty drawer and I peered inside, and and I saw this map that I had drawn, 
And I'd drawn this map very carefully. I'd inked it all in. I'd obviously had a lot of fun just, you know, just doing little sort of crosshatched lines and delineations of mountain ranges and forests and little sort of uh, uh, cities and, you know, all in geographical locations. And I'd obviously had a lot of fun just coming up with names that I'd, you know, sort of inscribed on the map. And then uh, I remember sort of, you know, doing this, just having fun with it and then looking at it thinking, actually, I've no idea what this is all about. You know, I'll put it away. And it went in the naughty drawer. You know, it's just, you know, there was, it just didn't suit sort of the things I was doing at the time. And so I opened the, the, the drawer and looked inside. There was this map. I took it out. I started to look at it and I thought, actually, this could be the setting for, for a new series, you know, and, and because within it, there were little cues for some of the things that, that I felt I wanted to do, you know, a, a good setting for, for sort of tin men who cut down trees and a nice sort of city that could be infested by by rats who uh, who are sort of running a protection racket uh, with the local bakers there there was a sort of place that looked perfect for beleaguered giants to hang out to escape from giant slayers and I, so I started to think right yes this geographically will work and I thought do you know what I'd really like to do are winged horses uh, a pegasus but then when I thought of the plural of pegasus I thought that's not going to work pegasus no. <laughs> so uh, I came up with the notion of cloud horses and that seemed to have a ring to it and I thought right well this will be a world in which you know one will have all these different characters including the eponymous sort of cloud horse and so it's built from that, and, and that often is, is is my creative process. One takes one element, and then you build on that element, and it becomes more intricate the, the more you build. And then, of course, I have an extremely good and long-suffering editor who takes all this stuff and says, look, come on, sort this all out. Um, <laughs> and with her great help, I finally get to a manuscript that, that I can then illustrate. Fantastic. And it's amazing, actually, I hear this time and time again from people that are creative, that the power of a map, the yes. map created by yourself, a map that somebody just happens to have seen, a globe. We started our, our conversation talking about classics and Alice in Wonderland. And the classics of my childhood all had maps, whether it's the Hundred Acre Wood the House of Pooh Corner and all those wonderful sort of uh, through to the Chronicles of Narnia with that just beguiling map at the yes. at the beginning, which you just know you want to explore. And then then moving on to the Shire and, and, and Middle Earth and these amazing, this invitation to go on an extraordinary journey. And so they're great invitations to, to enter into uh, a story. And they mirror, I suppose, the reading process where we we discover a narrative and a story and we have that delicious feeling of traveling to places that until then were just names on a map. Yeah, I totally agree. The power of a book. I've been talking obviously to a few people recently about this whole thing and about how we've been living a very strange life for the last six months. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we're recording this during the coronavirus pandemic. Now, you sound like and you obviously are a big reader yourself. Have you been turning to books more than normal during this time? Yes. Yes, I certainly have, Sarah. And I, I, I sort of developed a sort of multiple book habit through lockdown, I think, you know, so sort of usually I, I've got a book on the go. Uh, but during lockdown, I've had several books on the go, you know, at the same time. And and I think that's maybe because, in a, in a sense, we're not sort of, you know, being able to get out the way that we used to. And so I have a book for different times of day, you know, there's, there's a book I read in the morning and a book I read in the evening, and then there's a book I'll pick up from time to time uh, and, and look at. And they tend to be sort of different sort of genres. So uh, 
I've I've been reading some American fiction, which which has been sort of absolutely fascinating. I've been reading a uh, a book by William Dalrymple called The Anarchy. That's my nonfiction fix, which is astonishing in its uh, sort of dissection of British rule in India and and the genesis of of colonial rule that came out of the sort of venality of the East India Company and the unspeakable things they did on the Indian subcontinent. Mm-hmm. And it's astonishing as someone who has always loved history how fresh and new a lot of this information was. And I, I was ashamed to say that I didn't know. You know, of course, I knew of the East India Company, but I didn't know of its full venality until William Dalrymple sort of produced this amazing book, uh, a book, I think, that should be taught in schools, particularly now more than ever. Yeah, I think that's something I always find really powerful. I talk about this quite a lot, actually, because obviously, I also studied history at school, but I don't know what it was. It was obviously just kind of a light touch because I've definitely learned a lot more either by traveling to places or reading books about them since since having been at school. Mm. And I think also if you can find something that really piques your interest and is written in a way that isn't terribly factual but will give you the information um, in, in a way that's enjoyable and interesting, then you're much more likely to retain it. I also have this enormous brick of a book sitting on my bedside table that, that I I want to completely dive into and lose myself in, and it's it's Hilary Mantel's. Um, mm-hmm. I had a feeling that was going to be. There. And I've been resisting because you know I've, I've been reading other things, uh, you know, and but so I'm saving it. This is my big treat. And now, as we speak, we might be going into another period of restrictions. I think I'm going to spend that with Thomas Cromwell, and it's one of those wonderful. You, you know how the story ends, but the way that Hilary Mantel is going to sort of take me through it is is what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, that book. It came out on the 5th of March, and so just a couple of weeks before lockdown, and we sold a lot of copies on publication date because it had been highly anticipated. And then as soon as lockdown was announced, we had another rush on that book, and it continued to sell throughout the whole of lockdown. We were delivering it all over um, because people suddenly said, you know what, let's actually carve the time out to read this book. Yes, yes, and hasn't it been an extraordinary time? The, the other thing uh, that I turn to a lot is poetry, and one of the, the books coming out is a collection of, of poems that, that I've sort of chosen and illustrated, and it's, it's called Poems to Save the World With. And it very much was informed. The idea for this, this poetry collection, came out of two previous collections mm-hmm. that, that I had done. The, the first one was Poems to Live Your Life By, and the second one was Poems to Fall in Love With. And these are titles that my editor and I sort of sit and cook up just so that we can then just choose all our favourite poems to go in. <laughs> so that's a lovely thing. And I remember sort of uh, my wonderful editor, Gabby, at, at Macmillan, saying, what do you think about poems to save the world with? And this was back before Christmas. And I remember thinking... I don't know, that sounds a little bit portentous. You said, no, it'll be fine because you can choose this, this and this. We can have some ecological things. And I thought, okay, that that could be fun. And so we started to compile poems. Now, of course, then lockdown happened. Well, things grew in sort of January and February. And by the time we got to March, we were sort of busy compiling these poems. And so we suddenly realised, you know, that, that the world... It's going to be very, very different. And so we decided to have a section in the poems about lockdown. 
and we started to choose and actually ask some some poets, you know, whether they had lockdown poems, and and, and they did because it, it, there was an outpouring of creativity. And the title of "Poems to Save the World" would seem more relevant than ever. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because we're all talking in global terms now, and I think poetry plays an incredibly important role. I think in I suppose our empathic life, you know, the feeling that we're not alone, the feeling that, you know, human emotions can be identified and shared and solace, you can gain solace through through words. And so I've, I work on the, um, the poems and what, what I tend to do is, is, is get the uh, designers to, to design the, the, the pages and then, then send me the pages and I draw directly onto the, uh, the words as it were. So I draw around the text. I worked on this with quite some intensity. And as I was working on it, I had a few sort of moments when I was having a conversation with my son, Jack. Uh, he's studying filmmaking at Manchester Art School. And Jack was back with us during lockdown, frustrated, angry, incensed by whole Black Lives protests. He wanted to get out there and protest. And he was angry about sort of current situation. And, you know, said, Dad, I just feel like breaking windows and, you know, sh- shouting. I said, don't do that, Jack. <laughs> you know, <don't, laughs> you know, um, do something creative. And so I wrote a poem for Jack. It's called This is an Insight. And it really is a sort of um, really a, a, a plea to Jack to sort of, you know, take the creative route. I mean, I wonder, Sarah, whether I could just read that to you now. I'd love that. It's both a poem for my son, Jack. And it's a poem for Rupert Murdoch, if you can imagine such a thing. Okay. This is an incitement. Don't settle into inertia as the ash falls on your head and shoulders, soft and ankle-deep at your feet. Take up your pens and brushes and make art. The ancient dragons of greed, coiled tight around their hordes, don't understand art. But the snake oil minions who whisper in their ears as they sleep, they fear it. Art can capture the souls they bought and paid for. If you want to slay dragons, make art. Oh my goodness. So that was for my son Jack. That's wonderful. Sorry, I was I was taking a hold of the place there. Listening to you who wrote that poem, read the poem, it's just amazing. And I totally assumed that the book had been written and had been created or thought up, I guess during the pandemic i hadn't realized it was a project that had already been started so that's that's really quite fitting isn't it yes it it had been started but but with all these things in a a way deeply affected by the current situation and i I i think that's often what art can do yeah i agree i think that um what this has obviously been a very terrible time the last six months but i think there have been some positives that have come out of it in terms of seeing how people can connect in ways that maybe they hadn't realised they were going to be able to previously. Um, And I think we should take those positives and and move forward with them. I think we have to. And I think out of this will come, I think, a number of things. One is we're learning to value things that up until this point sometimes seem intangible, like, you know, well-being, like mental health, and and things like the the value of the natural world as well. You know, the, 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 the very air that we breathe, I think, is now subject to sort of debate you know how how do we save the planet we all inhabit and these have seemed at times very abstract and rather woolly sort of um, things to be concerned about and i think it's been really interesting certainly as a political cartoonist to see those that would lead us being forced off their pragmatic 
excuses and being forced to confront big issues. And I think if we can use this terrible as it is, terrible as a global pandemic is, if out of it, we take a path that leads us to wiser decisions and our politicians learn through this, then I think we will be in a better place. I totally agree. And I think that's an excellent place to finish today. Chris, it's just been amazing to talk to you. I had so many questions that I have for you and we've we've woven this amazing way. And I, I'm so pleased it's, it's happened that way because it's been absolutely brilliant. Um, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I can't believe the time's flown past so quickly. So, so Sarah, we must do it again. Well, that would be fantastic. I really appreciate your time. And um, best of luck, I don't know why I'm wishing you luck. Your books are all fabulous and they <laughs> kind of fly off the shelves anyway. But, but best of luck with the myriad of publications you've you've had recently and you've got coming up. Well, I would like to say, Sarah, uh, to you that, that, you know, if my books do fly off the shelves, it's in no small measure to booksellers like you who who are absolutely at the forefront and you're the person who recommends and hands books over we couldn't do any of this without you thank you so much chris riddell thank you very much thank you